If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Last year, a new book from the talented Greg Olson came out, and it was called If You Tell, A True Story of Murder, Family Secrets, and the Unbreakable Bond of Sisterhood. Over the past several months, we've had many requests to cover the story. And after reading his book, Starvation Heights, which we covered in one of our Halloween episodes, I actually pre-ordered this book because I knew it was sure to be a doozy. And I was not wrong. I do want to offer a trigger warning. We're going to cover many different types of abuse and torture, and much of it does involve children. Today, I'm going to introduce you to a monster, a sadistic monster who touted themselves as a good Samaritan savior of people in need, a monster who hid over 10 years of torture and abuse behind the closed doors of a cute little house nestled in a tiny rural town, a monster who went by the name of Mom. Michelle Lynn Watson was born on April 15, 1954, to parents Les and Sharon. Her mother was described by her father as a depressive alcoholic, and their marriage didn't last long. When Michelle was a young girl, her father Les left her mother and children to start a new life and ended up marrying a much younger woman named Diana. Sharon remained in California with their children, and Les and his new wife moved to Washington State. Not long into their marriage, they would get a phone call that would change the trajectory of their life. Sharon's lifestyle was not safe, and her three children were at constant risk. It was determined that little Michelle and her two younger brothers would move in with Les and Diana. Once the children were settled in their new home, Sharon returned to California and continued living her alcoholic lifestyle. She distanced herself from the children, ultimately becoming less of a mother until finally no one ever heard from her. Her life would end tragically, murdered at the hands of her boyfriend in a dirty hotel room. Her children already grown accustomed to their new life with their father and their stepmother. Raising three stepchildren was a tiring and thankless job. Suddenly blossoming from a newlywed to a young mother of three, Diana struggled through parenting. The boys were polar opposites, one quiet, meek, and often in tears, and the other wild and unruly. But Michelle, The red-haired, blue-eyed beauty proved to be the biggest challenge of all. The family made efforts to make the most of their time together, exploring the wonders the Pacific Northwest had to offer. From camping and boating, skiing, it was the type of life any child would adore. 
parents who spent time with them on the weekends, cared about their daily happiness, and never left them wanting for anything. That is, except Michelle, who always seemed to want more. Not a day went by where Michelle would neglect to tell her stepmother she hated her. She threw tantrums, fought with the family, and did poorly in school when she opted to go. At an early age, she started hiding things, from small things like switching into different clothes before school to lying and stealing. Her bad behavior always seemed to grow worse, not just lying, but blatant disregard for other people's well-being. Once, her stepmother even caught her putting broken glass into her sibling's shoes. That's a little extreme. It's one thing to change and skip school, but that's like, ooh, Mm -hmm. red flag. And yet, it grew worse. At the age of 15, Michelle, who now goes by Shelly, would push the boundaries even further. One day after school, Shelly didn't come home. Concerned, her stepmother called the school and learned that Shelly was at a juvenile detention center. Assuming she had acted out and got herself in trouble for something like stealing, she demanded to know what Shelly had done, but the school refused to divulge what she did until they met in person. Shelly's parents made their way to the detention center to learn their fate. They knew Shelly was a handful, but they could have never imagined the nightmare they were about to walk into. Shelly had told a teacher that her father had raped her. Her parents were aghast. There was no way, no way that could have happened. The family doctor was called to give her an examination at the local hospital. While she was evaluated, the Watsons went home and her stepmother searched her bedroom, hoping to find anything that would explain why her stepdaughter would ruin their lives. Hidden beneath her mattress was a magazine, and in it, an article was flagged, and the article was titled, I Was Raped at 15 by My Dad. The details in the article were near exact to the lies that Shelley was spewing. Then, the doctor confirmed that Shelley showed no signs of sexual trauma. In fact, she appeared to be a virgin. The ordeal ended with the superintendent of the school telling the Watsons that their daughter had major issues and required counseling. Thus began the hours of family counseling and the bouncing from school to school for Shelley. And at that point, how long had she been living with them? Uh, Ten years. Okay. And she was unruly from day one. Mm -hmm. The local schools didn't want Shelley Watson. They tried paid private boarding schools and Catholic schools, but even those wouldn't keep her for long if they even took her in the first place. Eventually, she went to live with her stepmother's parents to attend a school that would accept her. That only lasted a few weeks. After that, they tried her father's sister. While Shelley constantly told her aunt lies about her parents, they were ultimately happy that those lies allowed Shelley's aunt to continue to keep her living with them. Kind of a win-lose-win situation, I guess. In 1971, when she was a senior in high school, Shelley would meet the first man she would marry, a man named Randy. Even with her marriage and independence living in their own place, well, a trailer owned by her father that they were allowed to live in rent-free, she was never happy, never appeased with the gifts everyone would bestow on her. Her father had even bought them a car, but rather than say thank you, she threw a fit because it wasn't the car she wanted. The tantrums turned into more lies, After returning from a class he was taking at college, Randy came home to find a trash trailer and Shelly sobbing with claims that someone had barged in, grabbed their gun, and raped her. The sheriff came and listened to her story, but everyone seemed to know it was fake. After all, she had cried rape before. 
As proof of the ordeal, Shelley took them outside and showed where the man had left a gun, partially buried in their yard. But it was obvious she had done that herself. The couple had a baby in February of 1975, a daughter named Nikki. The family saw the baby as an opportunity for Shelley to grow up and change, but that hope was squashed early on. Shelley would try to manipulate and isolate her husband, a theme she would become notorious for. Randy was from the East Coast, and Shelley wanted nothing to do with his family. She even tried to sabotage a trip that they made to the Northwest to welcome their first child. She refused to talk to them and even locked herself into a room until they left. Gifts given to the couple for the new baby were suddenly missing or damaged, and a dress Randy's sister left behind ended up mailed back to her completely shredded. Randy described that he was banished to sleep in his car most nights. His money went right to the pocket of the demanding Shelley. Her constant beratement that Randy was the root of all their problems in life, the lack of money, the living in a dumpy trailer, eventually drove him away. He could no longer take the marriage. It was clear that he was just a paycheck to Shelley, so he left her to move back with his parents. They tried to reconcile at least once, but the relationship didn't survive after she stole their shared tax refund. Their marriage ended up in divorce, leaving Randy alone and in debt. It's really such a shame that she was growing up in the late 60s, early 70s, and the options were go to this school, the go to this school, go to this school, and not how do we get some real mental health treatment? Because also, especially coming from the moms. Why? Why are she acting like that? And her stepmother, upon reflection, is like, what happened to her when she lived with her mom those Ob- five yeah. years? Obviously, something happened there. And it was not just her. Her her brother was practically mute his entire first years of his life. Right. Her other brother, they described him as a wild animal, like digging through cabinets and just standing on counters and doing whatever So they just wanted. had no foundation. And then they're just put to all these schools instead of actual medical treatment that could have yeah. made such a world of difference. It was a different world, though. Yeah. You know, people didn't really know that. And they were not ones to hold back money. Like they, they right. were a, a well-to-do family in the area. And they were trying. They, they weren't tried. like, oh, she'll grow out of it. It's a fa-. They were trying to get services. I mean, her, but the stepmom's whole life was these children. Right. You know, she stayed with them and raised them and gave her all. And it was unfortunate that there weren't better options. Soon, Shelly was gone, too. She dropped little Nikki off with her stepmom and left town. A year went by until she finally came back for her daughter. She now had an apartment and a new boyfriend named Danny who lived down the hall. In 1978, at 24 years old with a three-year-old daughter, Shelley married Danny and a few months later had her second daughter, Sammy. One troublesome story that Danny would later retell years later was about when Sammy was a baby and Shelley had been home with her. He came home early and witnessed Shelley run across the room to pick up the baby from her crib. She acted as if she was a doting mother who spent the entire day with their bundle of joy. Danny noticed the baby hadn't been changed for hours and was likely just left in the crib all day, neglected and alone. From the beginning, the couple fought like cats and dogs. Danny didn't seem to be as pliable as the other men Shelley usually took interest in. It was no surprise that the marriage was over in a blink of an eye. But don't worry, in no time, Shelley had a new boyfriend and a new boyfriend and a new boyfriend and eventually set her sights on a local guy named Dave Nodick. David was a bit of a country boy. He was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, as anyone could tell from his affinity to West Coast surfing. He was recently home after serving in the military in Hawaii and Alaska. Now that he was back home, he was looking fit and more importantly, available. 
Shelly, who was curvy with red hair you couldn't miss, caught Dave's eye immediately. They started dating, and in true Shelly fashion, it had become dramatic early on. The single mother of two divulged to Dave that she had cancer. What else could Dave do? He needed to take care of the woman of his dreams. They moved in together, making the new Nautic family complete, and then they decided to get married in December of 1987. Nikki, Shelly's eldest daughter, would reflect on their marriage later on. It was perfect for Shelly. Dave didn't know what hit him. He was constantly yelled at by his wife, emotionally, mentally, and physically abused, and at one point, she witnessed him try to commit suicide. This was the type of man Shelly wanted, someone she could control. As punishment, Dave was often ousted from the house. He eventually would just sleep in his truck. Life with Shelly Nautic as a mother could be unbearable. It could be anticipated and it could be random, but it was always consistent. If things weren't just as she wanted it, even when you didn't know what she wanted, she would punish you. Her weapon of choice? Anything. Her children took to wearing layers upon layers of clothes to bed just in case their mother would drag them out of their beds into the middle of the night to inflict punishments in the cold winter air. Not only would she hit, punch, push, and kick, but she would often call them names like little bitch and fucking loser. Now, at this time, she only has Nikki and Sammy. Two daughters. The two kids. Okay. Her abuse was most often directed at her eldest, Nikki. She covered her bruises with long pants, tights, and long sleeves, but it wasn't always bruises. Once her mom pushed her so hard, she fell into a wall and a nail went into her head. But where Shelly really shined was mental abuse. She would set up traps to catch the small grievances children usually do, like sneaking into a room to use your mom's stuff or playing with toys you're not supposed to. She would even put tape on the doors to see if it was opened. Control seemed to be Shelly's forte. She eventually forced the kids to totally rely on her for permission to shower and to use the bathroom and to eat. When mom was away, normal kids are usually sneaking treats from the kitchen, but these kids were sneaking showers and trying to make it look like they hadn't taken one. As the girls grew older, the punishments became more creative. A new favorite game of Shelly's was what she would call wallowing. In this activity, she would wake the girls up in the middle of the night, but Nikki was always her target. She would drag her out of her bed and into the yard and force her to undress. She would then get into a makeshift mud pit where she would be sprayed with the hose, squatting naked in the middle of the night in a cold, muddy pit while her mother directed her stepfather to spray her with the garden hose. Shelly delighted in this game. She would screech for her husband to teach her a lesson, make her wallow. Sammy would watch this all unfold from her bedroom window, with tears running down her face, always wondering why her sister always had it worse. Yet the children never told on them. If they did, they knew something bad would happen to their family. Nikki was often locked away from everyone else, displaying her absolute low rank in the family. Shelley made her stay in her upstairs bedroom or sometimes in her closet. She would lock her in with a knife lodged into the door so she couldn't open it. Rather than give her breaks to use the bathroom, she handed her a bucket. Her limited interaction with her sister usually took place when she would lower the bucket from her bedroom window into the yard so her younger sister could empty it out for her. When her mom would come into her room to see her, she would leave her with words like, you're ugly, worthless, a bad, rotten girl. Of her punishments, this was one Nikki could deal with. 
She wasn't being hit, and when she was in the closet, she was in with a pile of books she could escape into. But alas, the easy punishment never lasted long. Soon enough, she was being chased around the house by a crazed mother screaming that she would kill her when she caught her. In one of these chases, Nikki actually went through a plate glass kitchen door, resulting in cuts all over her body. This was the first time Shelly appeared to feel a little bit bad about something she had done. She helped Nikki take a normal temperature bath, not one of the scalding ones she usually requested, and helped her daughter wipe up the blood. In 1988, a new family member moved in. Shane was Shelly's younger brother Paul's 13-year-old son. He had a very rough life, but his aunt Shelly and her husband had always been nice to him. He had nowhere left to go. His mother, a native Alaskan, had issues with drugs, and his biker father was in and out of jail on the regular, so Shelly decided she would take him in. It seemed to be the perfect setup for Shane. He fit right in with his 14-year-old and 10-year-old cousins. He took to calling his aunt and uncle mom and dad right away. They bought him new clothes and a new bed set and made him feel like he was part of the immediate family. Shelly, of course, exploited it and took advantage of the child so desperately in need. Soon she had him working for her. Day and night, she forced him to do her bidding. The longer Shane was there, the more Shelly took from him. His chores weren't enough. Soon things started disappearing. Eventually, he was made to sleep on the floor with no bedding at all. He was only allowed to shower twice a month, and often Shelly would take that away. Something you may be asking yourself is how no one would notice the mistreatment of these children. Well, Shelly hid it well. On the outside, they were a happy, loving family. She was a woman willing to take in her brother's unfortunate child. When their grandmother would plan a visit, they were conveniently not home, or she was only inside for short periods of time. None of the kids would dare tell anyone what was happening at home out of complete fear for this woman who controlled every aspect of their life. Yeah, she obviously had a talent for attracting that. You know, look at the victimizing of the husband, too, where yes. for whatever reason, he was perfect prey for her to, yeah. you know. And while people control. around town did, some people called her like crazy Shelly or psycho Shelly, it was because she was kind of loud and like quick mm -hmm. to yell but she was like the kooky lady right not... but she was always doing things that you would associate with a good person like taking care of the needy or donating or working for habitat for humanity like she just didn't give you the just impression. like a serial killer oh they were so nice yes and she had a knack for picking the right victims nikki now had a counterpart for the tortures inflicted on her like her shane would be made to wallow in the mud pit in the middle of the night Sometimes they would just be forced to sit outside in the cold winter air completely nude for hours. On other, more horrifying occasions, they were forced to strip naked and Shelley made the teenagers slow dance nude together while the entire family looked on. Humiliation seemed to be a key component worked into her rotation of tortures. Later that year, another new family member moved into the Nautic home. Shelly was pregnant with her third child, so her best friend Kathy, who was down on her luck, was going to move in and help out with the kids. Kathy, Shelly's hairdresser, bonded with Shelly over the course of their appointments. Shelly helped Kathy through a traumatic breakup and issues with her own family, and soon they were best friends and Kathy needed a place to live, so Shelly offered her one. They struck up a deal, free room and board for help raising the Nautic children. Poor Kathy didn't know that the moment she agreed to Shelly's kind offer, would be the end of her life as she knew it. Kathy Loreno was no stranger to sadness, though everyone that knew her described her as quick to smile. 
Her mother and her move to the Northwest after the tragic death of her father, who died from electrocution on the movie set that he worked on. Kathy was a large woman standing nearly six feet tall. She had curly dark hair and a personality people loved. Tori Nodick was born in June of 1989. She was a small baby who Shelley described as born prematurely with undeveloped lungs. Not long after she was born, Kathy and Shelley rushed baby Tori to the hospital because she had apparently stopped breathing in the night. But Shelley, of course, had saved her. Baby Tori was so sick that she had to be regularly watched throughout the entire night. She was sent home with a special heart monitor to help with this. Night after night, the baby's monitor would alert the family to something being wrong. But on one occasion, Nikki came downstairs to find her mother holding a pillow over her baby sister's face. Shelly, realizing Nikki was there, picked up the baby and cradled her and assured Nikki that everything was fine now. But something dawned on Nikki. This was familiar to her. Once, when she was a little girl, she recalled not being able to breathe and waking up to find her mother immediately holding her and telling her it was just a bad dream. She started to question, had her mother put a pillow over her face too? With Kathy moved in and the baby growing stronger each day, things seemed to be getting better for the family. The next year, they moved into a larger home that could accommodate their growing family, and with it came five acres of land, allowing them to have all the animals that Shelley so often said she loved. Dave ended up taking a construction job that would take him out of town during the weekdays, so it was lucky that Shelley had Kathy to help her with the home. Very lucky, because lo and behold, Shelley's cancer would come back. She called her stepmother to confide in her, but her stepmother had started to question it. The cancer treatments Shelly was describing were very long. Chemotherapy wasn't typically something that would last months and months. So she would ask, who's your doctor? Can I take you to an appointment? But Shelly would always maneuver out of them, saying that her friend Kathy had it covered. It was also odd that Shelly appeared to be getting multiple types of cancer. But her immediate family and dear friend Kathy always accepted her explanations and were willing to bend over backwards for her. Shelley took advantage of Kathy's kindness and eagerness to help. She knew that Kathy put her on a pedestal. She quickly worked to start driving a wedge between Kathy and her family. Eventually, Kathy stopped talking to her mother regularly. Shelley was the one person Kathy would need in her life, according to Shelley. Kathy was there to help Shelley get the kids in line. The kids often reflected on how strict Kathy was, but to Kathy, she knew the kids needed it. After all, Shelly had described them for months about how poorly behaved they were and how selfish they were. Kathy was there to get Shelly the respect she deserved from her offspring. Even with the iron fist she helped rule with, the kids grew to love Kathy. For Sammy's birthday one year, Kathy gave her a necklace of hers as a gift. When Shelly asked Sammy what her favorite gift from her big day was, without thinking, Sammy said, the necklace. That slight to her mother ended up getting her a severe beating that night, so that she could always remember that only Shelly's gifts really mattered. Soon, it wasn't just the children who had to be wary of Shelly Nodick. With each day Kathy spent living with the family, she lost more of her boisterous personality. She started deferring to Shelly for every decision she made in her life. Shelly would provide Kathy with numerous pills, coaxing her into them like they would help her feel better. Disagreements would turn into physical altercations, where Kathy, a former softball player, should be able to take on someone half her size. She would end up on the ground being kicked by Shelly. 
Shelley would gaslight Kathy, trying to convince everyone that Kathy would sleepwalk and eat, and just because she didn't remember didn't mean it didn't happen. Shelley would look to the children to confirm this, and of course, to avoid their own punishments, they would go along with it. Nikki, the eldest, recalled seeing her mother sliding a half-eaten pie under Kathy's bed and then accusing her of eating it in her sleep again. Slowly, Shelley would strip away anything Kathy had. She took away privileges as punishments, her photographs, her music, and eventually her clothes. All she left her with was a house dress and a single bra and panty set. Now Kathy had nothing of her own, and it wasn't like she was making any money. Shelley's sole purpose was to control her and make her rely on every single thing in her life. A few days later, her house dress was gone too. Kathy was now resigned to doing chores in the nude all day. She wasn't allowed to shower or bathe unless Shelley let her, and usually that was done outside with the hose. Shelley alternated punishment with kind words, comforting Kathy after a particularly bad beating. She was her savior and her punisher. She had become Kathy's entire life. When hitting Kathy herself was a bore, Shelley would force her nephew Shane to do it. If he didn't, she would torture him in the wallowing pit. So he would give in to save himself. He'd try to go easy on her, but Shelley would stand there and watch, forcing him to kick harder and faster. The girls would witness Shelley comforting Kathy after, as if she was protecting her from her nephew, even though everyone saw her force him to do it. Humiliation was always a factor. There was the obvious nakedness, but now Shelley had cut off Kathy's hair using a bowl as a template. As a stylist, she always had her hair done, but now Shelley would cut it off with scissors into a terrible mess. The kids would try to offer help when they could, sneaking her food or letting her out of her closet, but Kathy always sacrificed herself. She told them to leave her be because she knew if they were caught, they would be punished, and Shelley always catches them. Even in the lowest points of her life with the Nautics, she never gave up being a good person and looking out for the children. Kathy's daily humiliations and beatings turned into lengthy tortures. On a camping trip the family took one year, the kids recalled how Shelley made Kathy ride in the trunk. Kathy never resisted and got in and out as directed. Even when they were at the camping site, she wasn't allowed to sleep in a tent. She either slept under the car or in the trunk. It seems Shelley was delighted by this torture. She even tried to get the kids in on it. One time, they had to travel to town to the laundromat because their washer and dryer was broken, and their mom said, take Kathy, in the trunk. For hours, the girls were in town doing laundry while this poor woman was laying in the trunk of the car. The girls, too scared to disobey their mother, would sneak out to talk to Kathy through the trunk, just to check on her and make sure she was still okay. While Kathy lived with the Nautics, the kids knew she would take the brunt of the abuse, but she wasn't the sole target. Shane was still a particular focus for Shelley. Over time, Shelley developed new, unique punishments, making Shane slather Icy Hawk on his penis and binding him with duct tape by his ankles and wrists, all the while forcing the teenage girls to watch. Or perhaps she would duct tape a nude Shane and leave him in the corner for hours while she'd leave the house. She'd instruct the girls to make sure he didn't move. And of course, they obeyed her because they thought she was setting a trap. It wasn't as if people didn't try to escape. Shane, in particular, wanted to get away. He tried over and over, but was always caught. One time, when the girls were asked to watch him while he stood nude in the corner, Sammy left the room for a few moments to find that Shane was gone. 
For two days, he remained free while the entire family was out hours each day looking for him. When they finally located him, Shelley would coo to Shane how she loved him so much and the family needed him and they wanted him to come back. Was there any information about where he had gone? Was he just he, at a friend's house? They found him house, in Tacoma. He had actually spent part of his life homeless in Tacoma, so it was a comfortable place gotcha. for him to be. Shelley's focus toggled between the children and Kathy, but all of them were under her thumb. She chose where they slept, when they used the bathroom, and she watched them intently while they used it. And they never knew when she would fly off the handle and what torture she would dream up. Where's the newest husband in this picture? Did he bounce? He worked in a different city. Oh, that's right. So okay. he would go. So he was week- gone. For yeah, a week. he'd okay. come home on the weekend. That's right. And usually he would help Shelley with some of these tortures and then he'd go away for the week. And he claimed later he didn't realize how bad it was when he wasn't there. But when he was there, he always saw a reason for the punishments. Well, and when the person is a controlling abuser, he was manipulated it's easy to convince someone. Yeah. You look at his life and you can see it very easily. I And there have been studies done that anybody could torture under the right pressures, uh, not defending him by any means, but you can see his life building up to that. One exceptionally bad evening sticks out in the girls' heads. Shelley was very angry at Kathy, and in the middle of a cold winter night, she and Dave forced Kathy out back to hike up the hill. She then ordered her to be completely nude, sit down, and slide down the hill. She did this over and over again. All the while, Kathy cried, clearly in pain, and begged for them to let it stop. She was forced to crawl on her hands and knees back up the hill and slide down again. The kids watched in horror from the window and saw every traumatizing trip down the hill. The next day, they went outside and they could see red streaks of blood that covered the snowy hillside. It was then they realized how Kathy was really saving their lives. The abuse focused on her allowed them to sleep each night without worry that they too would be naked in the cold, enduring the pain their mother inflicted. In 1992, the family moved yet again this time to a secluded farmhouse they called Monhon Landing. The house was small and slightly dilapidated, but the land offered several small buildings, such as a chicken coop, a pole building, and additional outdoor storage. Now Shane's room was actually Nikki's closet, and Kathy just slept on the living room floor. Dave was hardly there due to his work, so perhaps they thought the house was big enough. The summer they moved in, Shelley explained that they would spend the time fixing it up. She gave Nikki the job of painting the house barn red, but when it came time to paint, she handed Nikki a one-inch paintbrush. That was what the teenager used to paint the entire house that summer. Sammy, who had been favored over Nikki for most of their lives, also had a job to do. She was going to paint the pole building barn red, but she was given a regular-sized paintbrush. While Shelley still relished in humiliating Nikki whenever she got the chance, It was obvious her favorite targets were Shane and Kathy. Now, when Kathy bathed outside, Shelly used bleach on her skin, allowing it to seep into the many wounds that Kathy wore over her body due to Shelly's rage. This caused severe pain, so what did she do? Duct tape Kathy's mouth so the neighbors wouldn't hear. Kathy tried to get away a few times. Once she was running away and the school bus pulled up to take the kids, she was fully nude, running in the front lawn. So Shelly had to attempt to concoct a story to explain why this happened. 
She encouraged Sammy to have some friends over to the house that day to use the hot tub. And while the girls are in the hot tub, she casually explains how she's really sorry they saw her nude. She had been electrocuted while hot tubbing one day and ran out nude across the lawn. And that's why she was there. She wasn't chasing someone. Another time, while Kathy was pulling out weeds, she disappeared. She had snuck off through the woods. Shelly drove out and found her pretty quickly and ended up taking her to the mall to get a few outfits and get her hair done. That, of course, wasn't going to last long. She only did it to appease her and then ultimately take those things away again. Eventually, Kathy was forced to live out back in the pump house. She was cold and alone and only left her space to do chores or be punished. It was here that Kathy's escalating health issues would eventually be too much to come back from. Shane had tried to give her the opportunity to run away, but Kathy knew she would get caught. It wasn't worth the risk, but Shane saw it for what it really was. She had totally given up. Kathy's punishments were more than most could bear. Day after day, she was humiliated. She was forced to eat salt or rotten food, and due to her sheer hunger of being deprived, she did it. She was even waterboarded at one point after Shelley demanded her husband to build a contraption that would allow them to do that to her. When it wasn't physical pain, she was called names and told she was worthless. She had nowhere to go and no one to trust. In the years she spent with the Nautics, Kathy Lorena was stripped of her dignity and her will to live. She lost over 100 pounds. She also lost her hair and her teeth. The last weeks of Kathy's life were miserable. She couldn't walk, she couldn't talk, and she had a significant head injury. All of the kids noted how her face drooped and she slurred when trying to speak. She couldn't even focus her eyes on them. But still, in her last lucid moments, the kids could tell that she was trying to protect them. When Kathy eventually succumbed to her injuries, and when I say injuries, I mean months of abuse and torture— she actually passed away from choking on her own vomit from her head injury. The children were nearby and petrified. They didn't know what to do, so they called their dad, Dave. He rushed home to help, but when he realized a corpse sat in their laundry room, he knew what he had to do. He had to get rid of the body. Shelley whisked the girls away for a fun night at a hotel where they could swim and hopefully not think about what was going on at home. But David forced his nephew to help him burn Kathy in the backyard. For hours, they tended the fire so that it was hot enough to get rid of the evidence. They covered her with metal and tires to mask the smell from the neighbors. Was there anything saying what her head injury was or was it just over time? She had taken multiple falls and hits to the head, kicks to the head. Gotcha. So it was a combination. It wasn't I think like it one was, incident. There was a few weeks prior. I think they recalled her taking a particularly bad kick in the head from Dave. Gotcha. Uh, but she was dragged around the yard by her hair. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. Anything. Yeah. A year of head injuries can definitely. Right. Shelley's work was now to begin. She had to make it seem like her best friend, Kathy, ran away. She started with the children, casually trying to jog their memory of Kathy's truck driver boyfriend, Rocky. Remember him, kids? Well, Kathy wanted to be with him, so she left us to be on the road with him. I think they're in California. They weren't stupid. They all knew what happened. The years of abuse their mom inflicted on Kathy and the abuse she forced others to inflict on Kathy had paid its toll. But they all knew they had to cater to their mother. Once everyone seemed to get the story when they the story that they were told they had to tell, 
Shelly started to shovel it to Kathy's family, too. Taking calls from Kathy's mother, she'd tell her she just got off the phone with Kathy. She was doing fine. She was with Rocky. Shelly was prepared. She even had a blurry image of a woman standing in front of a semi. And if you squinted and were told, you just might see Kathy Loreno. Kathy was officially reported missing by her mother in 1994. Police checked in time to time, but Shelly always had a story. She even had postcards from Kathy from all over the West Coast. Postcards that we would later find out she wrote herself and forced her husband to mail. A few weeks after Kathy disappeared, Shane did too. Shane had grown more and more restless with the situation at home. He attempted to escape multiple times. Shelly worried that he would leave and worse, tell her dirty secrets. They tried to beat him into submission more than once, so when he disappeared after Kathy, it wasn't hard to imagine that he actually manifested his own destiny and got the hell out of there. At least that's what Nikki told herself. Shelly had told the family that he left her a note, that he decided to run away to Alaska to work on a fishing boat. Now, for a 17-year-old man whose mother was a native Alaskan woman, this was a story that a lot of people bought. Convenient that the only time he called was when Shelly was home alone and the only one available to answer. With Kathy and Shane gone, Nikki was now back in the spotlight. She was just trying to live her life long enough to find a way to leave. When she'd come home from school, she would find the front door was locked, and now it was her turn to sleep outside. She took to storing things in the barn to help her survive being locked out. Sleeping bags and blankets, but her mom always seemed to find them and take them away. Like Kathy before her, Nikki was often made to do chores in the nude or in her underwear. She also found herself being attacked by her mother for no reason. Once, her mother even came at her with a knife and threatened to kill her. She thought she could die at any minute. In fact, at one point, she confided in her sister that she tried to kill herself. She had used twine in the chicken coop, but it wouldn't hold her weight, and she came crashing to the ground. Nikki felt isolated and targeted because she was. Tori didn't seem to get the same punishments ever. Sammy, while still getting punishments, got them far less frequently, and her connections with her friends seemed to get her through them more easily. Nikki didn't have that. Eventually, Shelly started targeting the relationships she did have, the ones with her sisters. What's worse than being hit by your mother and told you are nothing? Well, how about not being able to talk to your best friend, the one person who understands what you're going through? Shelly refused to allow Nikki and Sammy to speak to each other. Nikki was now outside nearly all of the time. She couldn't get a job because her mother took away her clothes. And when her mom would berate her for not having a job, she would act as if she had no idea why Nikki didn't have any clothes. Finally, Nikki grew resolute. She wanted out. She started standing up for herself. She started fighting back. Eventually, Shelly folded and allowed Nikki to stay with her aunt Trish in Canada. What was supposed to be a 10-day trip turned out to last a whole lot longer, and even more than that, it saved Nikki's life and gave her reason to see a future. But of course, Shelly would continue to torment when Nikki wasn't even there. She used that time to poison Tori against Nikki, to make Tori feel unloved and left behind. Before long, the family stopped talking about Nikki altogether. While she lived her new life away from the Nautics, she was written out of the Nautic storyline. After her trip to Canada, Nikki found herself living with her stepdad Dave at his work site. Sometimes they lived in just a tent. 
Dave went home on weekends, and sometimes Nikki would go with him. When she was home for the weekend and did her chores as she was told, it wasn't as bad as it used to be. She got a job at an ice cream shop and for the first time in her life started to feel happy. That's wild that she would go back home. It's I mean, the I understand. Yeah, I, un- I understand for her how it was, and why, but just it was either you totally give up your sisters or you do what your mom says so you can have some sort of relationship. And that's what it was. It was like, you want out? Fine. Here's a taste of that. You're not going to get to speak to anyone. Right. But if she came back and did what she was told, she could at least see Tori. Yeah. No, I, I I understand where it's coming from as the abused person and that that makes sense in that world. But it is so hard to be on the other side of that and look mm-hmm. at that and go, what do you mean you went home? Like, how scary would that be? But I of- imagine when you are only doing it in small pieces and you've endured that much that it's tolerable. Well, and I'm sure the power dynamic changed. When she's yep. like, I'm out of here. So it's OK. I'm not going to have control over you. You don't interest me. Anymore. Yeah. They, they described her actually hitting her mother back because she finally was about the same size. And Shelly was just shocked because her whole life she'd been in charge. With Nikki gone, Sammy was the eldest child and now the one who would take the most abuse. She was used to being hit and knew how to handle her mother. As always, Shelly was looking for new ways to hurt her children. She took to burning Sammy's library books and schoolwork, knowing perfectly well that she'd have to pay for them and redo all of her homework. These things were noticed at school, and eventually she gave in and told her counselor what was happening at home. But when the counselor said the school is prepared to work to have her and her sister removed from the home, she took it all back and said she made it all up. She was just too scared to break her family up. Back to her old tricks, Shelly started locking Sammy out in the cold. After her boyfriend would drop her off and drive away, Shelly would push her outside and lock the door, sometimes throwing a glass of water on her so she would freeze in the cold air. Sammy decided soon enough she was done. She wanted to go to college and live a normal life, so she started to plan her great escape. She decided to pack up all her stuff one day and leave it at home and send a friend over to pick it up while they were out. She left her little sister a note that said she would call her as soon as she could, and it worked. She got out, and on Nikki's advice, she went to live with her grandmother, Diana. When Sammy started college and tried to apply for loans with her Social Security number, the number didn't work because it wasn't her Social Security number. When she asked her mom to give her her number, her mom told her, ah, just use your little sister's or change the digits around. So this is a new way to torment your child. She's exploiting her social security number and taking loans out on her name because that's what she discovered. She had a $36,000 loan against her name as a new college student. Tori had been hit by her mom in the past, but never anything compared to what other family members endured. But now she was going to see the evil her mom could do to a person up close. It started with missing homework, screaming obscenities, and midnight sneak attacks in bed. Then it escalated to throwing objects. At one point, Shelly threw a radio so hard at Tori, it hit her in the head and drew blood. Shelly would hit her with objects from all over the house, wooden spoons, a fishing pole, really anything she could get her hands on. Her clothes were taken away too. Once she went an entire week wearing the same outfit to school, which doesn't sound that bad compared to everything else, but if you can imagine being a child going to middle school in the same outfit every day, Getting that question over and over, she shut down. She just stopped talking to people. She couldn't even shower half the time, too, so it was clear she was very dirty. 
The worst and most confusing part was when Tori went through puberty. Shelly decided a new humiliation was in store. She would make Tori strip down nude and evaluate every inch of her changing body daily. She pressured her into giving her a clipping of her pubic hair. She said both her sisters had done it, so when Tori pushed back and her mother got mad, she eventually did it. When she returned to her to give it to her, Shelly burst out laughing about how gullible and stupid she was. While Tori was at home suffering through being the sole target for her mother, her sisters were in the outside world rebuilding their lives and finding their way back to each other. While Nikki grew stronger and wanted to get justice for Kathy, Sammy played a much more altruistic role, trying to keep the peace in the family in the hopes that they could all continue seeing each other. As the Nodic family was much smaller than it had been before, Shelley decided it was time to bring a new friend into the fold. Ron Woodworth met Shelley while they worked for Habitat for Humanity, helping an elderly woman rehome dozens of cats. Ron was a plump, sweet man who was currently a licensed caretaker who needed some caretaking of his own. Tori and Ron struck up a friendship right away. He had books on mythology and Egyptology, and he would talk to her about what the world could offer. Shelley explained to Tori that Ron needed their help. He could be suicidal since his breakup from his partner of 17 years, Gary, and the death of his father. He was in his 50s and in a very dark place with plenty of problems with money and his mother, so he was really the perfect target for Shelley. In 1999, Ron moved in with the Nodics, taking up in Sammy's old room. Like Kathy, to the outside world, Ron appeared to worship Shelley Nodic. He complimented everything about her, and he always apologized when she got angry, whether he had anything to do with it or not. And he would constantly say things like, I'm sorry, Shelley dear. It was always Shelley dearest, Shelley dear. He just worshipped her. Mere days into living in the household, he was being called horrible names like fag and being told he was disgusting and a bad influence on Tori. But he continued on. Even when he wasn't allowed to eat dinner with them anymore and when he was made to sleep on the bedroom floor, he was still compliant and loving to Shelly. Shelly would feed him pill after pill and give him little more than bread and water. Like those before him, his personal items slowly disappeared until all he was left with was his underwear. Bathroom privileges were often revoked, leaving him to urinate in bottles he could find and store around the house, and he would try to dispose of them before Shelley would notice. Isolation was imperative to Shelley's methodology. Ron had two people in his life that cared for him, his mother and his best friend Sandra, Shelly was able to manipulate Ron to drive a wedge in those relationships, successfully making herself the only person Ron needed. While Shelly stripped Ron down to nothing, taking away his things, his family, his friends, and his dignity, a plan was being formed outside the Nautic home. Nikki and Sammy had finally told their grandmother everything that happened to Kathy. Nikki believed more than ever that something had also happened to Shane, too. She and her grandmother went to police, but when the police in Pacific County tried to contact Sammy to corroborate the story, they couldn't get through to her. That's because she was avoiding them. She was very scared. She did not want to tell on her mom because, again, 
All she cared about was keeping her family together at that point. While police seemingly did nothing, Ron's life spiraled into a living hell. He spent his days working in the yard despite being told he was worthless. He worked morning to night taking care of the farm and doing Shelley's never-ending list of chores, usually while barefoot with bloody feet and only wearing a pair of shorts. When Shelley was annoyed that Tori still cared for Ron, she would force Ron to tell Tori that he didn't love her anymore, but she could see from the tears in his eyes that he didn't mean it. The man she grew to know as Uncle Ron was being forced by her mother to tell lies because Shelley delighted in the pain of others. Tori didn't let that stop her from showing Ron kindness when she could. She would sneak hugs and smiles when her mom wasn't looking. She knew that if she was ever caught, Ron would be the one Shelley would take it out on. Though Ron was now there to take most of Shelley's punishments, Tori was still tortured as well. Her mother would do horrible things like put antibacterial foot powder in her underwear or even inside her vagina. She would make her go outside nude and she'd wash her with a pressure washer. But still, what Ron endured was worse. Shelly would scream at him, forcing him to hit himself, calling him names like faggot, loser, prick. She would make him hit himself over and over in his face and demanding for him to apologize for some made-up slight. Tori even tried to intervene, but she would push her away. Shelly made him drink his own urine, the urine she would find hidden in bottles around the house. And that was because, of course, she wouldn't let him use the toilet. So it was like he could never do anything right. She punished him uh, by having Dave beat him for catching him taking a poop in the yard. I mean, this poor man couldn't do anything. And that was what she thrived in. Dave and Shelley made Ron repeatedly jump off of the second story roof into the gravel in his bare feet. Now this, as you can imagine, tore his feet up and he broke several bones, but he continued to do it until they said he could stop. Shelley would force him to exercise on the gravel without shoes. His feet would be bleeding and she'd then say, oh, I'll help you. She'd fill the bathtub up with hot water and bleach and make him put his feet into it to the point that his skin actually came off of his body. She would have to wrap it up and he couldn't walk anymore. He was made to crawl wherever he needed to go. And at that point, he couldn't make it up the stairs, so he'd sleep on the porch or outside and was basically dying before Tori's eyes. Like Kathy, he lost pound after pound, tooth after tooth, until finally one day he never woke up. One frantic call from Shelly Dave rushed home. She claimed that she had left Ron out on the porch for fresh air, and when she came outside, he was dead. She then dragged his body out to the building in the back, put him in clean clothes and inside a sleeping bag, and then put his body into the freezer. Now, you have to imagine the strength she must have had to do this all on her own, too. She's quite scary. I mean, many people do horrible things, but just imagining her Lugging a dead, grown man. Yeah, it's just sick. And to not question it, and you're just doing it to cover up your own. And what was the timeline? Like, how long had he been I think there? he'd been there a, a, a couple of years. I don't think anyone lasted more than three years. Okay. Dave's job was now to get home and dispose of Ron's body. Normally, Dave would have burned the body in the pit. But since it was a very hot summer, there was a burn ban in effect. So he decided to bury him in the yard. 
After placing Ron's battered body into a makeshift grave, he put ash from the fire pit on top of it, soil and fir branches, hoping this would mask the secrets he buried there. Outside of the Nautic home, Nikki and her grandmother were still trying to get the police to listen to them about what happened to Kathy. They were very worked up about Tori and Shelly's new roommate, Ron. They were positive if the police didn't do something, Ron would have a similar fate. By some miracle, Shelly allowed Tori to visit Sammy. This was likely to get rid of Ron. If you look at the timing, it's very odd that she would let Nikki go visit her sister, who everyone was aware was still talking to Nikki. So and I'm, that's what they did with when exactly. Kathy had died. They had sent the kids away, so it all makes sense. So I think that's what they were doing, uh, that that time frame lines up. So when they were together, Sammy learned from Tori that her mother was abusing her. Now, the girls had hoped their sister wasn't being abused. And the entire time they lived away, Tori never really said that she was being abused. But on this trip, she just told them everything. She said uh, she wasn't allowed to eat most of the time. Like her mom would make her go one or two days without eating, which isn't really bad compared to a lot of the stuff she was doing. But pair that with being locked in a dog kennel and being sprayed with a power a power washer like these were things it's in the same realm of everything she yeah was and sammy was just like holy shit i thought you weren't going to get what i got and what nikki got so they were now vowed to get tori out they vowed to each other we're going to get tori out of this tori started to unravel she was told by her sisters to go home and act like nothing was wrong because Obviously, they were going to have to take a couple days to get her out, but she wasn't sure she could handle it. At this point, her mom was now trying to get her to take pills. She, she would be more compliant because she's now 14 years old, mm-hmm. can make her own decisions. And has her, these sisters that are saying, yep. we're going to get you out of there. It's wrong. Her mom's kind of seeing her pull away. And who knows what her sisters told her? She asked her several times, like, do you remember Kathy trying to see if she knew about Kathy's death? So she tried to keep her mouth shut while her mom was trying to feed her pills. She also was pretty positive Ron was dead. She had snuck around the property and noticed that all of Ron's stuff was kind of hidden away in one of the buildings. It was August 2003 when Nikki returned to Raymond with her sister Sammy. She was now married and had moved on with her life, but there in that town, her youngest sister remained with the monster they knew as their mother. The eldest sisters sat before the police yet again, telling them the tale of what happened to Kathy Loreno and what their mother had done to them for years. They explained that they had concerns about Ron and whether he was now dead as well. Finally, they succeeded. The police listened and they were promised CPS would get to their house and remove their sister the very next day. A knock at the front door brought it all to an end. 14-year-old Tori was finally rescued and in CPS custody. As she was being taken away, she leaned over to the deputy and said, you have to check out the back buildings. I found a bunch of Ron's stuff out there. Then she turned to another police officer and said, my mom has been trying to get me to take pills. It was obvious she was trying to ensure that she would never have to see this woman again. Now that Tori was free, she and her sisters laid it all out. They told police everything that had happened to them for the past decade. They would now be the witnesses that would bring their parents to their knees. And finally, everyone would know the torment that was inflicted on the people they loved. They wanted everyone to know that Kathy, Shane and Ron had deserved better. 
When in custody, Dave Nodick told police Kathy died by accident, but that him and Shelly tried to cover up her death by burning her body and putting her ashes in the ocean at Washaway Beach. He went on to admit that Ron had died too, claiming Ron had killed himself. Police arrested David for disposing of two bodies illegally, and then they obtained warrants to search the property thanks to the information the daughters gave them, and thanks to her husband, police had enough to arrest Shelley Nodick. During the property search, police found a small piece of bone in the burn pile. They ended up taking David to the property to help them search, and when they did it, to everyone's shock, he confessed to the murder of his nephew Shane. Shane hadn't left town to fish in Alaska like Shelley told anyone who would listen. He knew too much and Shelley wanted him gone. Apparently, Shane had hid photos of Kathy's battered body so that he could then take him to police and get help for himself and his cousins. He wanted everyone to know that Shelley was a murderer. But Shelley found the photos and to keep him quiet, convinced Dave he needed to murder him. In fact, she even tried to tell her husband that she knew Shane had sexually abused Tori because she thought getting him enraged yep. would help this. Manipulation. While Shane was cleaning the shed, David came up behind him with a 22 rifle and shot him in the back of the head. He then burned him in the same pit that Kathy had been burned. Their ashes were spread all over Washington Kathy's at multiple beaches and Shane's at one of his work sites. After digging up the property, eventually they found the body of 57-year-old Ron Woodworth. Perhaps if police had listened to Nikki and taken her more seriously, Ron could have been saved. Nikki and her stepmother tried multiple times to shed light on what Shelley had done to Kathy and what she did to her own family members. In searching inside the house, Evidence was discovered that supported Nikki's testimony. Undeveloped film was seized by police, and when they developed it, they saw a nude Kathy crawling around the home and a progression of weight loss, indicating to investigators that Nikki's story was not an exaggeration. DNA processing proved to be difficult. They had a single bone fragment, and while they could tell it was human, they didn't know if it was Shane or if it was Kathy. Ron's body showed signs of damage and hypothermia and eventually was ruled a homicide, but prosecutors were unsure if they'd be able to successfully get a murder charge for all three victims. David pled guilty to the second-degree murder of Shane Watson, which was part of a deal he worked out to reduce his charge from first-degree murder. He offered to tell on Michelle for the abuse and murder of Kathy and Ron. However, since they were married, Michelle could exercise her marital rights, which would hold him back from testifying against her in court. Everyone was now worried that she would walk away due to the lack of physical evidence. So they worked towards a plea deal. David Nodick was sentenced to 15 years in prison for the shooting death of his nephew, as well as the unlawful disposal of human remains. Prosecution and defense worked together to hash out a deal for Michelle as well. What resulted is her agreeing to an Alfred deal for second-degree murder and first-degree manslaughter for the deaths of Kathy Loreno and Ron Woodworth. This type of plea allows a defendant to acknowledge that a jury will likely find them guilty, but never actually saying they did it. The judge accepted the plea deal, but took 40 days before they provided sentencing. 
So while defense and prosecution had agreed on a sentence of about 17 years, the judge actually decided on 22, which was the maximum sentence. Right. In 2005, she tried to withdraw her plea. In her appeal, she claims that her attorney coerced her, that they provided ineffective assistance, that she wasn't competent at the time she entered the plea, and that the crimes didn't fit the facts of the case. And lastly, that the court committed judicial misconduct. These are all very big claims, but to no one's surprise, the court denied it. And they reminded the court that they had asked her five times when she was entering her plea if it was voluntary. And every single time, there was no hesitation in her affirmative response. Since the discovery of human remains on the Nautic property came to light, questions around the seemingly accidental death of an elderly man Michelle took care of started to surface. James McClintock, known as Mac, was a Pearl Harbor veteran. Mac was known for cruising around on his rascal and having a bit of a sassy attitude. That's how I picture us describing you later on. Fair. (laughs) Michelle met Mac while she worked as a caretaker at Olympic Area Agency on Aging, and she started building a strong relationship with him. Mac didn't qualify for in-home care through his insurance, so Shelly and him struck up their own deal. She would care for him at home without having to go through Medicare. She'd call him multiple times per day. She'd stop by and check on him. She, ba- she basically treated him like her own father. She even enlisted Ron to help her care for him, forcing Ron to sleep on the floor of Mac's house in the event that he needed anything. Eventually, Shelly got what she ultimately wanted. She bragged to her family one day that Mac was writing her into his will. Once his dog, Sissy, would die, she would get his entire estate. Sissy, Mac's dog, was his entire world, and he wanted to make sure she was cared for after he passed. In September of 2001, Shelley was granted power of attorney for Mac. It was a year and a half later when Mac had a fall. Ron had called police to notify them about the fall, but as Mac was old and had fallen before, no one really thought anything nefarious had occurred. He was taken to the hospital, but when he got there, He had died from acute subdural hematoma caused by blunt force trauma to the head. When his body was examined, the manner of death was ruled undetermined. Shelley took the news well, incredibly well, because she went home with $5,000 and his dog, Sissy. Once Sissy had moved on, she would then get his house worth $140,000. Tori recalled having heard her mother screaming at Ron one day, making claims that he had killed Mac. She was sure. He could have never done that. Ron was the most gentle man Tori had ever met. Shelley wouldn't let it go. She would call him murderer. And finally, one day he admitted that he did it. Shelley had then started telling Tori that Mac had fallen out of his chair and Ron stood by and simply just waited for him to die. So the question remains, did Ron kill him under Shelley's guidance or did Shelley actually kill him? I'm no expert here and didn't read the book, but I'd have to go with Shelly doing it or Ron forcing Ron made him watch. Maybe he fell out of the chair and she made him stand there and watch. Who knows? This woman's incredible in a very negative way, obviously. Within a year of Mac's death, Shelly told the estate's trustee that Sissy had died. She then took ownership of Mac's house and put it up for sale. But something interesting happened. When police arrived on the property with their warrant to look for remains, 
They noted that they removed six dogs, four kittens, a rabbit, and a bird from the premises. And one of those dogs happened to match Sissy's description exactly. She actually hadn't died, and she was in perfect condition. I mean, the people that put their animals in the will, that's a whole nother ball game we're even talking but about. But are you surprised that this woman didn't actually kill the dog? Yeah, but it's, I mean, she obviously would have, but all she had to do was lie about it because no one cared enough to check. Right. But you know that would have been next on her list. Oh, Oh, we'll need to see. Then I'll do it. That he, Mm -hmm. like, proof somehow. How do you prove that if you're the bank or wherever? Well, you would think for, an well, maybe if it was more, a bigger estate, they would need a vet sign off. But this is the middle of nowhere. Yeah. It was also discovered that Dave had been using Mac's social security number to get credit cards and loans. Investigators eventually filed charges against the Nautics and started looking into Mac's death as suspicious. But as far as I know, nothing has happened from this. I don't know if they just put them in prison and moved on or if they just didn't have enough evidence. But as of today, Mac's death still remains undetermined. David Nautic, now 66, was paroled in 2018 after serving 15 years. He's expressed significant regret for his part in these heinous crimes. And I can tell you, because I'm a creep online, he remains close with his two younger daughters. Sammy is a teacher in Washington and Tori works in digital marketing in a different state that I won't disclose. Nikki, who lives in Washington, does not have any relationship with him. And I I imagine that's because she spent her entire life being the primary target and he participated in it. So, you know, putting myself in their place, I feel like I would identify with that. But the other girls uh, have tried to move on and and have him be part of their lives. And And I think that's something only they could understand. Exactly. You know, I feel bad for him. Which is weird because he participated. He did. And but he, that was his role. That was the role that Shelly had him in. That yeah. was the control, abuse, manipulation. And he owns up to it. He does not yeah. write it off. He actually sat down with this author because his daughters wanted him to help tell the story. Mm-hmm. And he didn't hold back. Yeah. And I imagine he thinks about this every moment of every day. I mean, it's really a form of brainwashing. Mm -hmm. Really? I mean... He met her when he was in his dark place mm -hmm. after getting out of the military. She targeted him because she could control him and make him a victim. Mm -hmm. So I... While I don't think I could treat people the way he did, I can understand. And like I said, I've seen studies on everyday people being convinced to torture other people. Well, when it comes down to it's either this or it's my kids yep. or it's me or it's this or, you know, becomes Lord of the Flies within yeah. your own home. I can't and so- remember the name of the study, but there was a study done where it was a group of people and they were made to like electrocute other people. Oh, but the yeah. goal was to convince them to follow the rules. Shock, so like, not electrocute. That's it, shock. <laughs> like I'm helping them get in line. Yeah. But they did say if it were real, the shock would have been enough to kill a person. Right. So I, I that's just really interesting to yeah. me because it could be anybody. Mm-hmm. You're at your low moment and somebody pays attention to you who you don't think normally would. And she know, I mean, she's brilliant in her evil. Yeah. To know, I know what will make him do it. I'll say that this kid did this to his other kid and then he'll feel like he has to, to protect his children. You know, she knew 
what to say. And men aren't really, you know, believed as uh, victims. It's like there's probably a reason he was taking jobs that had him gone all week. Yeah. You know, like he was trying to escape too. And Well, Nikki talks about that, about how he was like half a person and he often wouldn't come home from his job site. His car was was broken and he's like, cool. Yeah. And his boss was like, want to borrow my car? And he didn't really want to because he knew what was waiting there for him and for his family. Mm -hmm. And when he wasn't there not seeing it, he could easily imagine it wasn't happening. Yep. So it's it's very sad. And I wish them all the best and whatever they need to do to rebuild their lives and whether it's have your dad in your life or not, you know, what they've gone through, the strength to do that and normalize your life is not something all of us could do. So, you know, I, I more power to them and I hope that there's a lot of good in store for them. Michelle Nautic now lives her life as inmate number 865733 in the Gig Harbor, Washington's Correctional Center for Women. But don't feel safe. She is due for release on June 30th, 2022. Even her own children have expressed concern that when she gets out, she's going to go right back into her own habits and torture someone. They do not speak to her. Sammy tried once and realized right away her mom was using her and cut her off completely. And I would do the same. I am incredibly apprehensive to see what more there is to come from Shelly Nautic. Yeah, I hope she ends up because it's it's a release. It's not parole. So I hope she's got some probation after that for some amount of time. And um, maybe they can get her on more. I don't know whatever happened with the the government fraud. Right. I, I mean, that's probably dismissed for the bigger charges, but maybe there's maybe more they're that, working on it. Yeah. Or maybe um, they can for max murder. Maybe mm-hmm. something could come of it. There are definitely some things there. And, you know, she has some notoriety, so she won't hopefully be able to just kind of slink off and hide away and make these friends. But that potentially or maybe she's gotten any kind of help and can but you know it's just this is ringing a lot of bells of like diane downs Mm -hmm. that same narcissistic the manipulation yeah the skill of just this is what i want and that's what's fascinating is just obviously something happened in shelly's life as a child that led to this lack of control and who knows what kind of genetic mental health things are going on there and her own mental health things. There's a lot to unpack and you want to just flat out go, this person's crazy. Like this is a psycho, but you obviously have a lot of mental health aspects happening. And she's never officially been diagnosed. So right. I am interested. We're lucky. Dr. Joni's going to come yeah. back and talk to us. Maybe she can shed some light. It'll be on interesting to hear. Yeah. Where she's, because there's kinds definitely of like things have happened in someone's life. Mm-hmm. But the what's so fascinating is the, you know, it's all coming from a place of control and manipulation. But to think of the things and and you hear it so often where, you know, like the paintbrush, you know, you hear stuff like that where it's, oh, the abuser was putting the kids against each other. So they did the You know, this person got a treat and, you know, this one didn't. And this one got dinner. This one didn't. I do love that it didn't work. Yeah. She tried over and over to do that yeah. and it didn't. But it's so work. strange that that's just this inherent ability of mm. like, did the she really? Things. Yeah. Did she really sit and think, hmm, how will I make them more upset? I know I'll give her. Or was it this like, I don't like this one here. Go paint with a one inch. Oh, I do like you. Go have the big brush. Like that yeah. to me is so fascinating that that's how someone's capable of Or thinking. was it simply just because you could control it? Yeah. 
and and do that. Like I I just the little details that this woman would do from there was a story I didn't put in here about her at Christmas. Um, the girls got these like little brooches and she hid them in the garbage and then yelled at the girls for losing them when she had actively taken them. It's just like they're that's setting like, that them right up. there is serious mental health. Yeah. Like beyond. So I'm curious, what do we expect out of someone like this who's going to serve her time? Right. We have to give her the benefit what of kind a doubt. Of access has she had to any kind of rehabilitation, therapy, support systems, mm-hmm. you know, because it's not to say, oh, screw her. I don't want to give her any support. Well, yeah, no one wants to, but it's also like this is our system. And if we're letting her out because she's served her time and that's how our system we works, need to prepare we the world. need to have something there as a support plan. Is she going to be monitored? Is someone checking in on the house weekly and really checking, not this, you know, yeah. knock on the door, is everything cool, but really going through the house and checking? Uh, is there any kind of specific plan in place? Mm. One little juicy tidbit, somebody who went to visit her in prison mm-hmm. noted that she had claimed to have cancer again. So, well, yeah, then you, got the, then you got the Munchausen and the Munchausen by proxy and the hypochondriac. Yep. And the, I mean, just well, let's see what Dr. Joni has to say about her. I am very curious. That's a great idea. Dr. Joni, what do you think? <laughs> Cheesy motherfucker. Today, we'll have the pleasure of a return visit from our favorite board-certified psychologist, Dr. Joni Johnston. So I was very excited when you said you'd be able to join me today because I was a little bit jealous that Alicia got to talk to you first. (laughs) I'm so sorry about the three or four day delay in getting back to you. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I have no explanation for how I missed your email. Oh, no worries. You know how it pops up? You received this email like three days ago. Do you still want to ignore it or respond? <laughs> it's like, uh-oh. No, I was so happy. I, um, you know, I heard your interview with her. I got to listen to it when it aired too, because um, since I wasn't able to join for recording, I'm like, oh, well, I'll su- be surprised with it. I'm excited. So I immediately thought when I listened to it, I have to talk to her about Michelle Nodick because this woman to me just stands out as just one of those people I can't get out of my brain. I can't imagine. Um, So one of the things I wondered from you is before I emailed, have you studied her at all? Have you read about her? I was a little, a little bit familiar with the case. I tend to focus more on serial killers, which obviously she was, um, you know, clearly when you look at the whole history, but she had kind of flown under the radar for the most part. Um, I, but when I went back and looked at her, you know, her history and some of the things that she's done, I, I re- remembered that I had read about her before. Yeah, definitely. I, I had seen a couple of articles pop up before. I think I recall the original trial, but once I saw, I think it was a, a pre-release message about Greg Olson's new book, If mm. You Tell, I thought, oh boy, I got to read it. <laughs> and I, I was blown away. Like the, what this woman got away with for so long and, and nobody telling on her. Yeah, it, it was pretty extreme. Not only in terms of the fact that she got away with it so long, but the fact that she, just what she did. Yes. 
it's hard to wrap our head, you know, our arms around that. I mean, I've heard lots of people say, oh, she was a psychopath, which she may be. There's mm-hmm. certainly some evidence to that. But, you know, most, even most psychopaths don't go to the level of torture and brutality that she did. Right. Absolutely. It's like you hear stories of people who abuse their children or you hear stories of people who torture, but it's, it's kind of rare, I think, to see all of these methods employed in one, but she's got those serial killer traits with the charisma that we've seen in some and the ability to convince people to do her bidding is just mind boggling to me. But I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts when you dissect her? What do you see as some, a professional? Well, I'll give a little kind of caveat first, because as a forensic psychologist, of course, I never diagnose somebody right. without meeting them and interviewing them. And I say that just because sometimes I think being a forensic psychologist, I don't want my quote or my thoughts to, to carry too much weight in terms of diagnosis. But I think that just from reading things her children have said, reading the history of the case, I mean, this is somebody who not only I think really had limited ability to feel empathy for other people, but I really do feel like she is somebody who seemed to get pleasure out of causing physical and psychological pain. And that's to me a whole nother level. So I know that Greg Olson, I think mentioned, you know, she has never been diagnosed as a psychopath, but she fits the traits. I would say if she does meet that diagnosis, then she would be a psychopath plus. Yeah. You know, a psychopath plus a lot of other things, including somebody who really is sadistic in terms of the things that she does and the reasons that she does them. Yeah, I agree. I I was um, thinking back to the evil scale or the gradients of evil uh, Dr. Michael Stone developed. Sure. And I, all I can think of is she's that top of the scale, right? The, just the sick pleasure she derived from these people's pain. Yeah, and it really was directed at so many different people. Although I think the commonality that we see, which is certainly true of a lot of serial killers, as well as people with psychopathic or sadistic traits, is she certainly consistently chose victims who were vulnerable in some way. Right. The other unique thing, I mean, maybe it isn't unique if you can tell me based on your knowledge of serial killers, the ability she had for lying and she constantly was toting this, I have cancer throughout her life. And anytime somebody maybe wanted something from her that she wasn't willing to give, she would say, oh, I'm, I have cancer. You can't leave me now. I need your help. Is that something we see in other killers? You know, it's interesting when you look at serial killers and you look at the difference between male and female serial killers, that is something that you often see with female serial killers more than male serial killers. In other words, a lot of times with male serial killers, you'll see this quest for power and this, you know, a lot of physical abuse, which of course she does, she has in this situation as well. Um, but you'll also see things that you don't typically see with, with women, with men. You'll see, for example, sympathy being used as a ploy which she clearly does in the whole, you know, I've got cancer or poor me or whatever. Um, The fact that you don't necessarily see early on is, you know, as a a child or even a teenager necessarily, a lot of physical violence. That's something you oftentimes see in budding psychopathic men, but you don't typically see that in budding psychopathic women. You see more of the kind of verbal manipulation, relationship manipulation, talking other people into doing things for her. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so in some respects, she is characteristic of other women who would meet the criteria for psychopathy. And she's unlike some of the men that we would think of as meeting that criteria. That's interesting. And when, when you talk about sympathy, I also think of how in, the, in Greg Olson's book, he talks about how she would abuse Kathy and then comfort her. Or she convinced her nephew to abuse her and then she'd comfort her. So she's constantly toying with that I'm your savior role almost. Yeah. And I think when you look at just abusive relationships in general, whether it's domestic violence or other kinds of abusive relationships, even cult relationships, you do oftentimes see this real kind of just chaotic, but just really disturbing push-pull, kind of the love bombing that you'll see at the beginning of a relationship sometimes. And then the testing starts to see what you'll put up with or what you'll, what I can get away with. And then this kind of, I love you, but I hate you. And this just incredible um, vacillation between, like you said, between being kind to somebody or trying to be ni- being nice to somebody and then just completely going in the other extreme. Yeah. I, I constantly think about these these adults that lived with her that she abused and eventually murdered, I think what made them stay? Why were they constantly willing to suffer and stay with her? And it, it's almost like she stripped the, everything away from them so that they had nothing except for her. I think that she did. I mean, she really did, I think, almost brainwash them yeah. to some extent. And I think one of, one of the most difficult things I think as a forensic psychologist, so maybe as for any of us, is to, to in any kind of relationship that's so extreme like this one, we look at it, we kind of go, how would anybody get involved in this? And even more importantly, how would anybody stay in this? And yet what we what is harder to see is this kind of series of events or this kind of like the frog in the pot of boiling water that gets hotter and hotter Right, is how the abuse starts and then how it just continues and escalates. And of course we're coming and looking at it at the very end and kind of going, how could somebody be in a situation where somebody is murdered or killed? And yet we don't see necessarily all the evolution that goes up leading up to it. Definitely. And do you think that's a form of Stockholm syndrome? I mean, what she did to them and conditioning them over years. You know, the whole Stockholm syndrome is kind of interesting to me because, you know, as I'm sure probably your listeners know that it was kind of coined in 1973 um, as a result of this robbery in Stockholm, Sweden, where these four individuals were essentially kept for four days. um, And, you know, it was a very stressful situation. And what shocked everybody is when they were released, instead of being horrified, and we hate these people, we hate our captors, it was more, how is this person doing it? They were nice to me, they weren't mean to me. And there was this identification, it seemed like, Mm -hmm. with the captors. Um, So a couple of things I want to say about that is I think that Stockholm syndrome is something that obviously is not, you know, we don't officially diagnose that. And I think to some extent, it's kind of covered under, some of the symptoms are covered under post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm always a little bit hesitant to say there is a Stockholm syndrome because it can sometimes, I think, Emily, almost seem like we're blaming the victim in a way. Yeah, I can see Um, that. You know what I mean? And when, when I think in reality, you kind of go, well, if somebody is in a life and death situation, then 
how are they supposed to act? Right. They need to survive. You do exactly, exactly. It could be a survival strategy. And so it just becomes a little bit tricky, I think, to, to kind of maneuver those terms when in fact, who knows what, what any of us would do in a situation where our life is on the line, we're being held captive, we're being physically tortured, we're being neglected. Um, It's hard to answer that question. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I look at it, I see these adults that were there, but there's a number of reasons, you know, they didn't have anyone else. They didn't have someone who could rescue them. In Kathy's case, she was protecting the children. She knew if she left that they would become the target of this woman. So it's almost like she was sacrificing herself for them. That's such a great point because I do think sometimes it's easy, particularly a psychologist, to kind of use psychology to come up with all these explanations when there are some very real practical reasons why somebody would do the things, you know, to, would, would kind of go along with something or would, um, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah it's, it's like, okay, what, what is the practical part of this? Well, yeah, you know, we want to be, we want to make sure that people are safe. We want to make sure that, pe- that people are accountable for what they do. Yeah. And I guess that makes sense too, with her husband, uh, Dave, Dave Nautic, that over time, what is he to do? He has children with this woman. He clearly spent a lot of time away from her when he could, but he ultimately did what she wanted and helped her dispose of bodies and murdered her nephew. What are your thoughts on that? It's interesting, their relationship, because I think sometimes we underestimate women from, you know, in a good way and a bad way. (laughs) And that I think if the situation was reversed and that um, we were looking at Dave as a powerful figure and he's kind of, you know, uh, as opposed to Shelly, it wouldn't be so shocking for us to think of Shelly being kind of in the driver's seat, which I definitely think that she was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do too. And so, yeah, you look at it, you kind of go, would it be hard to imagine that two people could kind of hook up with each other and one would be the mastermind? Well, that happens not all the time, but it happens more often than not. But what doesn't seem to happen is, you know, as much as when you have a woman who's really the more powerful person and the one driving that relationship. And I think that's really the most unexpected part of this duo. Yeah. And I mean, it helps that she did seek out people who seem to be very needy in their lives. Like they were desperate almost for attention and love and she could find that and exploit it, which is horrifying. There's such a theme, isn't there with her? I mean, even when she met Dave, I know Dave's mom said that he had just gotten, um, you know, out of a relationship and he was kind of in a vulnerable position. And that really just seemed to be a theme throughout you know, the whole thing was that for opportunity. Exactly. Looking for opportunity for people who were like, Kathy was very mild mannered and very, you know, kind of easygoing. And yeah, there's just, that just seems to be a a theme that she's going to find people who the family, there was a a problem with their family relationship. There was some difficulty there. So she just was like, I mean, she could really pick up, I think, and pick out people who she could take advantage of and manipulate. Yeah. Definitely. And it's kind of scary. I mean, it's very scary to think about. She was working as a caretaker. She was working for jobs in schools with children. It's, I don't know. I can't imagine what the people that worked with her were thinking. That's, that is terrifying, isn't it? It is. But when someone's charismatic, they show you, I guess, what you want to see. And she seemed to be a pleasant person when you first met her. 
That really did seem to be a theme, but I, you know, I wish that was more unexpected than it really is. I mean, I think so much of the time we look and kind of go, you know, it's hard to imagine that this nice seeming person is the way that she is. And yet I think that so many people have such an ability to compartmentalize, you know, mm -hmm. different parts of themselves and they can pretend to be whoever the nice person, the caretaker, the big sister or whatever. Um, and that's, that's really scary to think that there are people that can just almost be anybody that we want them to be or that they want to be. Yeah, absolutely. I, when I was reading the end of that book and they talked a little bit about um, one of the girls talking to her when she first went to prison, I was nervous. I thought, oh, oh no, like she's going to continue this control from jail. And I was pleasantly surprised that, you know, they ultimately, the girls don't speak to their mother. Uh, however, two of them still have very close relationships with their father. And, you know, I often put myself in that position. I think, okay, he did his time. He went to prison. He got out. He was clearly under mental distress with when he was married to her. But I still have a hard time imagining them going to ha him and having a relationship, knowing well what he, what he helped contribute to. I think that's a, a very interesting point. And I'm not sure what to make of it either. On the one hand, you kind of go, yes, you know, by comparison, Dave seems to be much more, you know, likable, much yeah. more, um, you know, willing to adjust, just, you know, just somebody that you can kind of adjust. But I don't know what, I mean, it is hard to know what to say, because on the one hand, again, in comparison to Kathy, Dave seems to be much more, um, you know, kind or much more available or whatever. But in reality, there's no way you're going to be, anybody can let Dave off the hook for that. I mean, he murdered somebody. Yeah. He and buried somebody. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I mean, I'm with you. It's like on the one hand, I kind of want to go, yes, I understand that, you know, that, that Shelly was just really difficult and ho a horrible person and that Dave felt trapped by her, et cetera. But I mean, at some point he is also responsible. Absolutely. For the things, yeah, for the things that he has done. And, and the fact that he maybe did hook up with somebody that if he hadn't have found Shelly, maybe he would never have done those things. I, I, I can believe that. Emily. Yeah. I really can. I can believe that if it wasn't for Shelly, that Dave probably would, his life would have turned out differently. But he made choices. And obviously he has to live with those. Definitely. And I think he, he has shown remorse and owned up to what he did and did his time. So I guess I can understand forgiving him if he was my father, but yeah, it's still a hard pill for me to swallow. I worry about, worry about them. And, um, now I have to ask you this. So Michelle Nodick is due to be released in 2022. And as someone who evaluates people with mental disorders up for parole, what do you think? What, what goes through your mind when you're looking at someone to release them into the public? I mean, when you're looking at somebody who I think has a long-standing way of relating to the world, which I do think that, you know, again, I don't want to diagnose Shelly, but I definitely would say if I had to pinpoint something, I would say she has a personality disorder, which by definition is a long-standing way of relating to the world. Right. I'm concerned. I would be concerned about her being released. I can't imagine her changing. Um, we know that certainly that, that criminal defendants tend to age out of violence. 
um, you know, by their mid fifties, it's relatively rare for mm-hmm. somebody to be, you know, to be doing some, some of the things that we did in 20 in their, that they did in their twenties or whatever. But I have to say, I would sleep a lot better at night knowing that she was not going to be getting out. I agree. And you know, physical violence aside, there's so much more to her, 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 her stealing, ruining her daughter's credit by using their social security numbers. I mean, there is way more to her than, than killing people even. That is, that, that's a great point. I mean, that really is a good point. Um, and, and the other part of it is, and maybe you've heard more than I have, but I don't see any remorse no, at all. It's all other people's problems. Yeah. She puts, she, she pointed the finger at her husband. So I, that's, that's another thing. It's like, do your time and own up to it. I can't believe she's still trying to play innocent. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, her daughters are pretty amazing. It sounds like in terms of what they've been able to overcome and do with their lives. But the fact that they are so concerned about her release is perhaps the most compelling argument to me against her being released. They have been very vocal about that, that they do not think it's a good idea. And I mean, who else, who else would know better than them, to be honest? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I completely agree with you. I mean, I can't, I just don't see any evidence that this is somebody who is interested in, in changing her life in a positive way or who has regrets for how she's lived her life up till now. Yeah, definitely. Everything, every bad thing that's happened to her isn't her fault. It's interesting. And maybe you know more than I do, Emily, about her childhood. I know that I think she's a twin, right? Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that if she was. I know she had, um, when her father took her in, she had two younger brothers and the three of them moved in. Her mother died in her teens I, when she was in her teens, I believe. And I know when she moved in with her father from a very young age, she showed really bad behavior. I mentioned in our episode that she put glass in her brother's shoes, like crushed up glass. Her stepmom caught it and just terrible things. And she lied, accused her father of rape, and they were able to prove that she was lying. Um, and in and out of every school she ever, ever started. So definitely had her issues, but her stepmother said something I thought was very important was she doesn't know what she experienced up until she was four years old and four or five when she moved in with her and that her mother was a severe alcoholic with really bad people around her. And it's very possible that she was abused as a child, Mm -hmm. which I think explains a lot of the behavior and the need for attention. Yeah, that doesn't, that certainly fits with some of the history, but you know, it's interesting. Like we're saying, I mean, sometimes it just looks, seems like there's kind of this cycle of abuse and neglect that goes on so much in families. And I, I was kind of wondering, you know, what her background is from an early childhood. You're saying that from up until age four, nobody she, knew any. Yeah, she was four or five and her mother basically called her father and they had divorced very early on and uh-huh. said, I, I can't do this anymore. So he took them with his new wife. But yeah, nobody really knows. They lived in California in a kind of a seedy hotel. And um, I'm sure she's seen a lot of things by a, a young age that no one should see. Yeah, it's, it is interesting, though, just given the, I, I guess, how would I say, the, the um, criminal diversity 
that she has. Meaning, like you were saying, it's not just that this is somebody who's willing to murder, but this is somebody who lies and this is somebody who steals and this is somebody who doesn't seem to have much of a conscience. I mean, this is somebody who just seems to have such an incredibly diverse, again, just criminal aspirations that is, I just, I, I wonder about, you know, kind of what started that because it's such an extreme which we were talking about before it's just such an extreme yeah um, and who knows maybe she's just like that you know like there there have been killers who don't have the entirely terrible childhood that we expect out of serial killers you know so I, I, who knows maybe she hit her head at some point <laughs> yeah. and I think the other thing that that I think I read and, and correct me if I'm wrong but the whole issue about substance abuse that she has a pretty extensive history yeah, it sound, that- sounds like opioids were rampant throughout her life, and, and she would feed them to the people she abused as well. And she even tried to, to control her daughters with, with drugs. Yeah, it's hard to think of anything positive to say about her. <laughs> I'm struggling, Emily. I'm like, okay. Oh, there's nothing. I mean, you know, as a psychologist, I'm always looking at early childhood and looking at those things. And, you know, I do try to look, I do realize that, you know, people, people aren't born, uh, you know, they weren't born evil. You know, they aren't born, you know, there's a, a lot of things that happen a lot of, for most people until they develop some of that behaviors and some of the attitudes and, you know, really lack of empathy and that kind of thing, but it's difficult with her. It really is. It really Um, is because she looks for opportunities to hurt people in the slightest ways too. There's a story of her, I think it was her first child. The family visited her husband's or yeah, her husband's family visited and they talk about how she just didn't want anything to do with them. She put salt on candy that his grandfather had made. So when he ate it, it was terrible. It's like, why would you do that? Like you're just sabotaging every moment of everyone's life. Yeah. Like you were saying, I mean, she just seems actively sadistic in a lot of ways, you know, not just somebody who just doesn't care about other people and is only out for herself, mm-hmm. but somebody who's so much more than that. Um, you know, like I said, I mean, just this whole, just what I read about her and we, you and I talk about her. I mean, the whole, the, the word that always comes to mind is sadistic. Yeah. This is somebody who is just, you know, enjoys hurting people, enjoy, you know, and gets something out of that. It, it's very scary to imagine that in, in less than two years, she's going to be out. I, I hope somebody's got their eyes on her. That's for sure. Maybe it will be me. <laughs> well, I'm rooting for you. I mean, I'm like, count me in. <laughs> Don't forget to check out Dr. Joni Johnston's YouTube series, Unmasking a Murderer, and her blog, The Human Equation, on psychologytoday.com. If you're interested in learning more about Shelley Nodick and her family, check out Greg Olson's book, If You Tell, A True Story of Murder, Family Secrets, and the Unbreakable Bond of Sisterhood. tiny egos this is water is this for bad dogs it is yeah. for bad dogs yeah <clears throat> Thank you. we have to regulate often and bad girls. regulator <laughs> Feels good. mount up <laughs> 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 t-shirt contest do not shoot me with that
It was just your nips. It's chilly. Yeah, just shoot it right in the nips. Just get it right in the nips. <laughs> Joke's on you. I don't know where they are, so I won't know if you got them. <laughs> I'll figure it out with simple geometry. It made my face really hot. I can't say about my booty hole. I don't it was, remember. I just sniffed it a there. little. Not enough to my be. My booty hole? hole? No. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a loosey, goosey, juicy. Is what it was. Ew. I'm also uh, an expert in poppers. I could talk to you guys about that too, if you'd like. My mom sells them out of her van at the country fair. <laughs> Does that mean you're arrested a few times? MIPs? I have never been arrested. Thank you. MIP. I've ridden in multiple cop cars, but I've never been arrested. Just for fun, Roadhead. Though. Yeah. You know how I feel about Roadhead. Wait, you could sit in a park. She car can and sleep do it. through it, though. Also, I was. Oh! <laughs> Nothing mm-hmm. worse to me than an essay answer. You flipped to that last question. <laughs> that is, except Michelle, who always seemed to want more. That was a good line. <laughs> Today's episode brought to you by Vicks VapoRub. And holes. <laughs> holes. Well, it's always brought to you by holes. So many holes. That like... The drunk guy at the party that is mostly unconscious, but then here's <laughs> he one word. Up. That's what she said. <laughs> here's one word that jars him back. <laughs> so we're chatting and then just, oh, yes. <laughs> Everyone knows that guy. That's what her look sounded like. <clears throat> I just have the personality of someone that's constipated. And looks. <laughs> <laughs> pretty cool. I'm pretty cool. Are you making fun of me because I say that a lot? No. We all say that all the time. Yeah. I know. It, we, we need I think, shirts. Yeah. I think I started it because you guys started doing it. We yeah. say it a lot. Yeah. So pretty cool. I like it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Baby. <laughs> you could say the Watson family. Or you could just say the S at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could just say it like I was going to yeah. go for that. But. All right. Yeah. Third time. Let's we'll see. Re- you fuck you. Every person who's whoever mocks like every lady that ever mocks a guy's voice does that does voice, that voice? <laughs> would you prefer <laughs> would like you prefer we're... this through time we'll see i don't you know i don't know that because the yeah that made me feel bad but the first one just made me angry so yeah <laughs> i feel like i'm getting a cramp in my neck is that possible Am yeah I okay? are you going is like that this? possible yes there's a muscles in there i know but i'm, I'm sorry squeezed. i said it like that <laughs> Squeeze your shoulder blades together. Yeah, squeeze them together real hard. There we go. Parents to attend a school that would accept her. The hell? (laughs) A man named Randy. (laughs) And an uncle. And it's the same guy. If I don't stop getting accused of incest, <laughs> never, it's never. I'm gonna start doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're gonna keep telling me I'm a cheater, I'm just gonna go out and do it. I'm gonna fulfill my destiny. <laughs> was that, was that just was yeah. that dipping in? That was the destiny. Yeah, oh, oh. that was the destiny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm. Doing great, guys. Did I take a sleeping pill instead of a multivitamin? I picked the hardest words. Job? Job. (laughs) Construction. But of course, I don't know where I was going with that sentence. (laughs)
Of course. Soon it wasn't just the children who had to be worried. Oh my God, I can't talk. I can't do it. Just rewrite it and put like a capital E. Well, wary. Yeah. <laughs> That's you the word. It. You did it. Soon it wasn't just the children who had to be wary of Sherry Nautic. With each day, Kathy's. No. Huh? <laughs> I didn't even want to tell you. What? You should. You said wary of Sherry. You did. <laughs> Who had to be wary of Shelly Nodick. Oh, oh, I was so close. I said her name dumb. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> yes, and it's on it. I have like a handle, you know, so I like had it out and I would be like, I got a handle. Trying to wash my hair. <laughs> and I was, what, what does that even mean? I don't know. Because so yeah, his handle. I loved drinking hose water. Oh, that rubbery would, plastic well, taste. For like until you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. until your stomach. Yeah. yeah, so good. I always like to have it straight up. And Did then, we all oh, have the same childhood? I love really it. Funny. Yeah. And then oh, could, yeah, yeah. Like it'd be like a bubbler. Mm -hmm. I like so that mine is blah, 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 and you're like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> and I'm like. Yeah, I don't know how I did. I think I did it like side, side sideways. Yeah. yeah. Harmonica style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the name of the game, baby. Doing good till you don't. <laughs> I shall tell you a tale. Well, you should see the sentence. It's. I feel like most of your sentences just look like a monkey slapped a keyboard. No, it starts off. <laughs> we'll go back. Let's go back a bit. <laughs> That's a good idea. Good idea. <laughs> this resulted into her agreeing to an Alfred deal. This was a Alfred. No, it's Alford. I mean, I guess you could say it, Alfred. But it's Alford. A L F O R D. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was an Alfred plea. Well, he did say it, right. Probably said like but you're, that. You're but I'm thinking it like, like Alfred's, like Batman's Butler. Yeah. But it's Alford, like the Alfred plea. Like Hitchcock. <laughs> no, that's Alfred. Yeah. Alfred but this Ford. is Alford. I didn't realize the semantics. Goo. <laughs> <laughs> While she worked at a caretaker at Olympic Area Agency as. What'd I say? Ass? At <laughs> at a caretaker. I know it's like at, oh, I ass. see what I did. An ass caretaker. <laughs> I'll, I'll take, take care, care of that, that ass. ass. <laughs> mind to mind. <laughs> Fun fact. Gig Harbor. Yeah. I drove by that thing every morning on my way to high school, and my dad would out the window at the women. <laughs> At the high school? No, at the fucking correctional facility. Oh, oh right on. Like, well, he just says just crude things, and he just that's a it was very so Keith in a nutshell. Yes, miss this. You'll never get a piece of Keith. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a maniac. My grandma's buried in Gig Harbor. Oh, really? At the prison? Yeah. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs>